Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin, and this week we have a special guest with us, uh, a contributing editor to Providence, Paul Miller. Paul Miller is the uh, professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He's a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council and Scowcroft Center for uh, Strategy and Security. He is a uh, noted author. His uh, most recent book, uh, out with a new preface last year is American Power in the Liberal Order, um, a conservative internationalist grand strategy. Um, And uh, Paul is a frequent uh, contributor to uh, Providence and to uh, many of our um, uh, venues and and, and efforts and a noted speaker on uh, U.S. foreign policy. So, uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it, Drew. So I wanted to uh, have you on, and uh, we've engaged over the last uh, several episodes and, and over the course of the the Provcast a conversation, um, whereas at times we delve into specifics of, of U.S. foreign policy, and at times we try and take a little bit of a broader look. And I, I want to do a little bit of both uh, with you, but talk about uh, kind of the, the scope of uh, the Trump administration and, and Trump's foreign policy. You've written a lot about uh, the U.S. strategy, your book about uh, the American uh, power and liberal order. Um, kind of taking a, a, a look at the United States' uh, strategy and, and how they engage the world and the, the history of that and then some prescriptions of where to go uh, moving forward. But, um, you know, help us, uh, help me and, and help our, our readers kind of diagnose, you know, where you see and, and can locate, uh, you know, President Trump's foreign policy. We're, we're over two years in now. Uh, so I would argue that the way in which the United States is engaging the world is is the Trump way. I mean, you know, he's he's been able to kind of enact his his policy. He's owning more and more of of um, interactions around the world and and the news that's coming out, uh, you know, based of out of how the U.S. is engaging. So um, help us maybe locate as best you can, maybe ideologically and philosophically, the the Trump foreign policy in comparison to uh, what's preceded it and in the larger picture of the U.S. kind of grand strategy? Yeah, thanks for the question. And that's uh, your, <laughs> it's a big question. Sure, uh, you got some time, though. That's, yeah. that's the <laughs> um, So I think it's helpful to distinguish uh, Trump's foreign policy, uh, his ideology, from, as you said, what came before uh, and several different schools of thought or different ways of approaching American foreign policy, but really ways of approaching America's role in the world. Um, the first key question you know, that we need to ask is, is classical liberalism, are the ideas of freedom and democracy, are they universalizable or are they just particular to Western civilization? Uh, that's a key distinguisher in, in how you understand America's role in the world. If our ideals are in an important way, not actually ours, but if they are universalizable ideals that other people can share, then that leads you to some form of internationalism, where America's role in the world is to be an example or a city on the hill for these ideals, to champion the ideas of uh, freedom and liberty for all. On the other side of the ledger are those, and here I'd put uh, President Trump and people and his staff and advisors like Steve Miller and Steve Bannon, who believe that democracy is good, but it's good primarily because it's our own particular cultural heritage. President Trump was very clear about this in his speech in Warsaw in July of 17, when he talked about the, 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 the treasures and the virtues of the heritage of the West. And I think that's all true, but that's not the primary reason why I value the the values of liberty and democracy. It's not just because it's our own particular heritage. I think that these are values because they are, in some sense, true and right, actually, for everybody in all times. So that's the key distinguisher between a nationalist like Donald Trump and his advisors 
and various kinds of internationalists on the other side. So that's one key distinguisher. Now, now let me make another distinction, sort of along an, another axis, another distinguisher in uh, the foreign policy debate. And that is simply, how dangerous do you think the world is? Or another way of putting it is, what kinds of tools do we need to use to accomplish our will in the world? And here's where I actually have quite a lot of similarity with the Trump administration. Because here, you can place both nationalists and what I'd call conservative internationalists on the same page, believing that the world is actually quite dangerous. There's a lot of threats out there. And therefore, we need to use all the tools available to us, including the tools of hard power, military force, to accomplish what we want to accomplish in the world. So Donald Trump and I have a similar threat perception. We think the same things are dangerous, and we actually think the same tools are required to meet them. That's why President Trump has been a bit more uh, willing to use uh, either military force or military threats, and that's not always a bad thing. That distinguishes us from liberal internationalists, like the, I think the Obama administration, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, on the one side, and even distinguishes us from, I'd say, advocates of restraint or isolationists. Sometimes people have said Trump's an isolationist. He's not. He's plainly not. He's actually so inactive around the world, uh, and, and, I, and I can applaud some of that. He just doesn't do so for the sake of universal liberal ideals. So, so much of what you're you know, arguing, I think, is, is um, and, and what I want to kind of suss out is, is the terminology, right? So th- what, is, what is conservative? Uh, what do we mean by that? Because there, there is, uh, if you trace the uh, U.S. engagement with the world and kind of our opinions on that through uh, what you do in your book and you do, you know, kind of quite well through the, um, through the kind of conservative um, uh, 1980s and Ronald Reagan and, and George W. Bush uh, in terms of kind of engagement in the city on the hill, then you go into kind of the, the um, uh, interest, kind of liberal, optimistic, utopian kind of engagement of a, of a Bill Clinton. And then you get into a George W. Bush. And this is where, uh, you know, we enter into this space where you have, you know, a conservative president, you know, who's the son of a conservative president, relatively conservative, uh, that is, you know, the Republican Party um, that is uh, ends up being highly interventionist in response to um, uh, 2001 and, and 9-11. And uh, is is operating, it seems like, with a, a very liberal kind of utopian anthropology of like, look, if we can just free up uh, the people of Iraq or free up the people of Afghanistan, if we can just remove the, uh, you know, dictators off of their backs, that the, the arc of freedom of history is long and it bends towards freedom and that these, you know, kind of universal ideals that, you know, you've uh, talked about in your first answer, um, will proliferate out and, and they will choose democracy and democracy will kind of flourish. And yet we see that is not always, that's not always the case, right? I mean, and it's not always automatic and it's not always, uh, and a lot of critics, uh, both of, of Bush's policy and, and now defenders of Trump's more kind of limited approach, uh, seem to kind of point to, uh, this being a, uh, you know, if we're going to look at this truly realistically, um, not every culture, especially cultures that don't have an appreciation, uh, historical appreciation for freedom and, and liberal pluralism and, and democracy, are going to choose that if given the opportunity. And so if we're going to intervene, if we're going to kind of get involved, uh, it's not just enough to just create the opportunity kind of for them. So where, you know, 
now returning into the Trump administration and and trying to maybe they would argue reclaim what is kind of truly conservative. Help us kind of make sense of the terminology, right? Because it's uh, I think that that's important. I think words are important. Uh, so help help us maybe try and make sense. Is is what you know Trump is engaging in with this kind of um, this return to a nationalism and American first and a, a kind of a more interest focused transactional model? Is that true conservatism or is the kind of Bush model conservatism or is it, you know, where help us kind of understand that. So let me um, say first that I think that the Trump administration is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We all agree and we all know that there is dangers to a utopian foreign policy. And we all know we need to be a bit prudent in how we pursue both our interests and our ideals. Uh, But President Trump is throwing out the ideals altogether. And again, he's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Think about a president like Ronald Reagan or a president like Harry Truman, maybe a president like um, JFK as well, where they were very unapologetic about championing American ideals and talking about the uh, importance of freedom, democracy, and justice around the world. Um, They very much held out the ideals of liberalism, classical liberalism, as a pole star to guide America's role in the world, to define who we are as a nation. Uh, And you cannot walk away from that. You cannot abandon that. That's who we are. That's our brand. Um, And those ideals are also true. They're good. They're just. They help build a more just and lasting peace in the world. So we should never walk away from that, which I think the Trump administration has. Uh, The the key is to understand in a practical, pragmatic way how to make the necessary political compromises, how to operate within the realities, the, the, the bounds of what's feasible in the world. And you mentioned, obviously, that sometimes these things fail. They're hard. Sometimes it is hard and difficult to champion democracy around the world. I don't think the George W. Bush administration's primary fault was in trying to achieve democracy in Iraq. I think it was a failure of management. and It was a, you know, a failure of execution and not doing it well enough. I'd much rather uh, have seen, you know, if, if we were to go into Iraq, which we did and maybe we shouldn't have, if we were to do that in the first place, we should have gone in much more with much more uh, capable, capability, with greater capabilities, more resources, and better preparation to do the thing we said we were there to do. It would have been a really bad idea to try to go in without the democratic aspiration at all. Uh, that is a very bad idea that can lead to very damaging consequences at home and abroad. Right, and that would maybe be more of an imperialist kind of model. Yeah, I mean, it's which just, I think, well, honestly, that's what I think Donald Trump, his foreign policy would lead him to do. He said very clearly three years ago, our foreign policy began to go awry when we tried to spread democracy around the world. You know, I disagree with that. I think spreading democracy in Germany and Japan was a fantastic idea. I think fostering a culture of democracy in Europe after the Cold War and uh, helping democratize Eastern Europe was a fantastic idea. So Donald Trump was exactly wrong to criticize the democratization of other countries. So it seems that there is uh, obviously, I mean, Trump is a reaction. I mean, uh, you know, he his presidency is a reaction to uh, the Obama administration. But in large part, I think it's it's a conservative reaction to um, uh, George W. Bush. And it's, uh, you know, they uh, by the end of the Bush administration, I was in politics and I remember, you know, seeing uh, the rise of the Tea Party, right? The rise of this this kind of group that began to strongly push back against uh, kind of some of Bush's. Uh, more kind of like liberal or moderate kind of impulses, the compassionate conservatism kind of ideology. I mean, they began to kind of push and react against that. Then you had the rise of this, um, you know, uh, liberal kind of world order with Barack Obama that that I think did an immense amount of damage in that it's um, – 
seemed to fall into the liberal trap of their their tendency to um, you know have a, a great amount of difficulty recognizing evil abroad and locating yeah. you know most evil at home right i mean that's kind of the liberal tendency the conservative tendency is the reverse i think the conservative tendency typically has no problem calling out evil uh, abroad and and saying that we have enemies uh, but has a very difficult time sometimes seeing it you know, like in ourselves and so uh, Trump is obviously, I think, you know, a huge reaction uh, to, to all of this. Um, and there are people who uh, make the case, and they've made the case through Providence, through our pages, and even on our podcast, that you know th- this level of disruption is a, a healthy thing, and that it's um, uh, that the uh, I think Rebecca Heinrichs, um, who is a fellow at the um, Hudson Institute and has been a guest on the show, made a point. She calls you know Trump the great clarifier that in, in his kind of action and in his kind of a bull in a china shop kind of effect he ends up kind of exposing where people truly stand and and maybe you know what kind of uh, truly matters but what i want to um kind of get your opinion on what i see and is maybe kind of a criticism is it seems like you know how do we discern the disruption from total destruction right <laughs> you know i i, yeah, the, I have the, the no virtue problem in, the virtue in creative destruction is the creation right you have to right. have some yeah exactly to, yeah Exactly. And so what, uh, you know, how do we uh, acknowledge that, you know, there are times that you know, maybe U.S. policy is not perfect. There are times maybe it is uh, stuck in kind of a diplomatic intransigence. You know, that's, I mean, uh, diplomats, I think, are inherently conservative. You know, there's a status quo there that needs to be maintained. Um, and sometimes that leads to maintaining systems, maintaining leaders and relationships that we shouldn't. You know, we need to disrupt that. That's fine. But it seems to be completely, you know, backwards it seems to be we we, criti- we will criticize the eu we will go after the european union we will uh, criticize the members of nato uh, but then the the enemies that we truly have right the, the enemies of russia the enemies of china saudi arabia um trump seems to be almost you know obsequious in his praise and his you know north korea uh kim jong-un's a great guy they're you know their love letters flying back and forth in between them like um you know this reaction that's uh, occurring to the you know, to the Obama administration and the, and the liberal order is it it doesn't seem to have a lot of coherence I guess is what I'm saying so where where do you see you know Trump in terms of uh, his advocating for American virtue abroad and and maybe healthy aspects of his disruption but then maybe unhealthy aspects yeah well so there's a lot of stuff there in your question uh, this is part of the reason why I do not buy the argument that Trump is a great clarifier because he does not help clarify things and he does not see with moral clarity and he does not speak with moral clarity. As you pointed out, he praises dictators. He praises tyrants and totalitarians. He admires Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, well, whereas he does not speak well of our allies. So that's not helpful and he's not a moral clarifier in any sense. Um, I, let, me, let me back up a little bit. Behind some of your questions, I think, is this idea that somehow um, we have to choose between us two choices in a stark dichotomy. You know, the progressives have got it all wrong. The globalists have got it all wrong. Uh, and so Trump is here railing against globalism. Isn't Doesn't he have the solution? Or, you know, Trump's, uh, Trump's a nationalist and uh, he's got it all wrong. So don't we have to lurch into the other camp and sort of throw in our hat with the globalists? And what I'm trying to say is, no, they're actually both wrong. I don't see anybody out there right now. There's no elected official, essentially, in the United States and no foreign policy practitioner in office right now that I think has got it right. Uh, I, I don't. I haven't heard anything good from any of the Democratic candidates for president. I haven't heard anything good, essentially, from almost any member of the United States Senate or House. 
Um, so I don't, I, you know, if you sit here and criticize Trump, I agree with you. If you sit here and criticize the progressives and the globalists, I agree with you. I think they've all, they've all got it wrong. And that is part of what I try to explain in the first few chapters of my book, is we've got a fairly bad track record of the past quarter century. And I've been trying to chart out what I think is the right course, which I've called uh, conservative internationalism. That's a phrase I borrowed from a guy named Henry Now, who's a former Reagan administration official, that does hold out aspirations towards liberal ideals. And when I say liberal, I mean classical liberalism, 18th century liberalism, that we should always use that as our pole star. Uh, but we should also operate in a prudent, conservative, pragmatic way, recognizing the limits of reality to avoid the traps of utopianism. That's what I'm trying to get at. I think Trump gets it wrong in lots of important ways. As I said, I see a few things that he gets right. His threat perception is right. His uh, comfort with uh, coercive bargaining um, and the saber rattling is, I think I'm fine with that too. I think his rather tougher stance towards China has been good. I wish he applied that towards uh, Russia as well. I think his saber rattling towards North Korea in 2017 had some logic to it, although his personal insult over Twitter did not have logic to it. Um, I, uh, I do not agree with his rhetoric about democracy around the world. I think it's been a bad idea. I loved his speech towards Afghanistan in 2017. I wish he actually implemented it. And now that he's trying to walk away from that and pull up troops out of Syria, that's a terrible idea. So, Drew, I I'm trying to convey to you how we can praise and criticize at the same time. We don't have to fall into this camp, this uh, trap of tribalism, where we're all in with one team or all in with the other team. That is very unhelpful. It's intellectually dishonest. It's morally questionable. What we need to do is maintain our own integrity and say, here's where they get it right. Here's where they, they get it wrong. And Trump's got a lot of stuff wrong, a few things right, but I think it's a net ne negative as a whole. So I think that's helpful. I think that's uh, I think that's a helpful point to make. And honestly, it's uh, that Trump seems to, in his own policy, reinforce that dichotomy. And oftentimes he sets up, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in terms of criticism or in terms of praise or in terms of engagement with other nations, that it's either I praise them or we bomb them. I mean, it's literally that type yeah. of language of like, you know, Jamal Khashoggi is dismembered by uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And it's like, well, I'm going to believe he said he didn't do it. Uh, what do you want me to do? You know, criticize it. What do you want me to do? Like bomb Saudi Arabia or cut diplomatic ties? And, you know, my point has always been, I don't see that those are the only two options. I don't, right. I don't see why, you know, yeah. let's keep diplomatic ties, but then also say for the, you know, the, the signaling, you know, virtue, but I think, you know, um, that's important of saying, Hey, you know, yeah. this is not right. It's not right to kill journalists. Uh, you shouldn't yeah. have done it over the last 10 years. You shouldn't do it to yeah. Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, you know, there, there's a there's a virtue there in making uh, that kind of moral pronouncement. Yeah. It's not an either or of doing absolutely nothing or total, you know, <laughs> annihilation. Yeah, and so this is how Trump is kind of a skillful politician because he uh, he always, he uses his words as a wedge device to force people to take sides. Either you're with me whole hawk, or you're essentially a kind of a traitor for the other side. And by the way, I think Obama did kind of the same thing but in a more genteel register. And so it was harder to notice when Obama did it, but he was, I think Obama was actually quite divisive in how he always cast himself as the moderate. And so anybody who opposed him was an extremist. Uh, he was, it was very mendacious the way he did that. And, and Trump is just more blunt, more overt and cruder in how he does it, but he does the same thing. Um, they're very div divisive in how they approach politics. And it's contributed to the tribalism we inhabit today. So I think you bring up an interesting point, and there's something that I want to kind of uh, tease out in that um, 
there seems to be many people, though, that, that make the argument that, uh, you know, with his disruption, uh, even with the dichotomies that sets up, and a lot of it, there's a lot of unhelpful stuff, that it's still kind of a net good. You know, you've got a guy, Shadi Hamid, who's actually written for Providence, writing in the Atlantic, saying, you know, all the Trump naysayers and the people, the Trump derangement syndrome, uh, you know, purveyors that uh, were prophesying impending doom upon his election, you know, we're two and a half years in, and I mean, the United States still stands and the democratic, you know, government is working and its checks and balances are, are kind of prevailing and he's not, you know, engaged in in the kind of a totalitarian uh, regime or Trump, Trumpocracy or something like that. Um, and then there are people that look internationally and, and say, all right, you know, he's, there's a lot of disruption there, but ultimately that disruption is kind of good and you got to take the good with the bad. And, you know, it's like, um, I push back against that uh, kind of uh, I think it's too pragmatic and I think it's um, uh, there is a, a writer uh, recently in something that I read a Christian writer who, who's talking about you know if you're trying to um, it's kind of like rightly diagnosing that the culture has a cancer right um, but uh, there there's an argument to be made that we're trying to remove that cultural cancer with infected instruments you know like what good does it do to try and improve the culture try and improve this uh, disruption if we're doing it with with implements and instruments that ultimately are, are doing a little bit more more harm than good so how do we kind of as, as maybe Christians apply uh, in in the public square you know, apply a level of maybe kind of discernment to help, uh, you know, um, apply some understanding to this, this, that, those kinds of criticisms. Yeah. So, uh, I, again, I come back to avoiding the tribalism that seems to define a public discourse today. Uh, if we want to remove the cancer without infected instruments, we need to get out of this tribalist mindset. One of the things I'm greatly frustrated about in the past few years is that uh, Trump and his supporters have seemed to have created a new culture of political correctness surrounding Trump himself, where criticism of the president is uh, frowned on, viewed suspiciously, ruled out of court prima facie. Uh, if you utter any criticism of the president, you're not on our team uh, and you're not part of the cause, you're betraying, you're undermining the cause. That, it, it greatly frustrates me um, because I think that is reflective of this tribalist mindset as Christians we should not think of ourselves as on this team or that team. Uh, and we should maintain our own integrity by being willing to criticize when public officials merit that criticism. And when Trump lies constantly, as he, as he does, as it's very clearly empirically demonstrable, we should say so. We should say, you know, our president's a liar, and that's a bad thing. It, it should require no further explanation that it is bad for the president of the United States to lie. That is a bad thing, and he lies all the time. Uh, and he could say the same thing about his general uh, behavior and comportment and character and temperament uh, are they're just bad things. And so it sh we, we should be at the forefront of offering those criticisms. Uh, and I um, am very concerned when I see people muting themselves, censoring themselves, exercising a kind of a restraint just because he, he's one of ours, so to speak, because he's appointing ju justices we like. I, you know, I don't buy that. I think that it's actually important for us to hold everyone up to a very high standard, particularly when they come from so-called our side. I'm not sure what sides then mean anymore. Uh, but so I, I think, you know, again, as Christians, it's especially important for us to hold everyone up to a high standard of uh, character, behavior, temperament, and, and language. And um, that would be a good for our public witness.
So we're speaking to uh, Paul Miller, who is the professor of uh, the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University uh, School of Foreign Service and the author of American Power and Liberal Order, a conservative internationalist grand strategy. Um, we've been speaking about uh, uh, Trump foreign policy. And we're, Paul, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about maybe kind of some guiding principles uh, that are kind of theologically rooted uh, that can help uh, equip uh, American Christians to kind of engage the real world. When we come back. Welcome back to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. Managing editor Drew Griffin and my guest today is Paul Miller, who's the professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Uh, he's author, also a contributing uh, writer here, an editor at uh, Providence, and a, uh, a noted author. Uh, his latest book, uh, with a, a paperback edition published in 2017, um, 2018, sorry, uh, was American Power and the Liberal Order: A Conservative International grand strategy. Uh, we've been speaking about the Trump administration and, and foreign policy and trying to suss out kind of the um, the, the merits and, and uh, the, uh, you know, potential um, downsides of it. And, and, you know, Paul, I can hear, you know, people probably in the audience saying, yeah, but what about uh, the other side? What about the, um, you know, what Trump is responding to? Like what's uh, help maybe um, address some of the criticism that is probably going to come based off of maybe some of what we said? Yeah. Yeah, so um, that's a very common response whenever I voice a criticism of uh, Trump, either personally or in his record, his policy record. I hear, well, what about what you know, Obama did? What about Bill Clinton? What about, what about, what about? And I have sort of two responses. Uh, one is that many of those arguments are perfectly correct and valid, and I've made many of them myself. And number two, they're beside the point. Um, when I criticize President Trump, I'm not thereby endorsing his opponents. I'm not saying they've got it right either, or they've been any better, uh, because I can recite for you a very long record of the bad things that Democrats have done since time immemorial, uh, going back to Woodrow Wilson and beyond. And, and in fact, um, in this current issue of National Affairs, you can find an essay by me uh, called uh, The Perils of Crawley's Promise. And I, I go through and I read Herbert Crawley's bo old book, The Promise of American Life, which is a century old this year. And it is a founding text of progressivism. And I kind of detail how it, it's bad, how it's, uh, it's intellectually authoritarian, how it is inconsistent with the norms of democracy and liberalism that we cherish and hold in love. Um, so I, I, I'm right there with all the critics of progressivism and the other side. But that doesn't make Trump any better, right? Just because the other side is bad doesn't make Trump's vices into virtues. Uh, they can both be bad at the same time. And I think right now our primary obligation is to focus on the guy who's actually in office, the guy who's actually in charge, the guy who's actually making policy and got the, the bully pulpit in front of him uh, day in and day out. That's the more pressing concern. Um, that'll change, I think, in two years when the next person takes over the Oval Office. Uh, but for right now, uh, as Trump is in charge, it, we're, you know, it's not 2016. We're not there. We're not doing it all over again. So we don't have to make this binary choice between him and Secretary Clinton. And so I'm going to focus on uh, President Trump's very real and very troubling uh, problems and, uh, and flaws. And I think that's a that's a valid, important thing for us to do. Yeah, the analogy that I often use is the idea of, uh, you know, someone is if someone's breaking into your house, no one ever says, well, but I'm 
burglary happens all the time. You know, there's you know, people get <laughs> right. homes get broken into all across America. Yeah. No, you call the police, right? It's like That's right. this is this is when when some uh, crime is being committed. And I'm not saying that you know, Trump administration is a crime, but I'm just making an analogy of just like when when something you know bad happens, you fix it. it the argument exactly. is not yeah. in any other phase of life or area of life. Do we rarely make the what about argument of saying, yeah, yeah I know Thank that you. you did this to me. I know you sued me or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. It's yeah. like, no, you fight yeah. it. You contend for it. You you push back against it and, and call it out for what it is. Yeah, thank you. And it's been a little wearisome over the past few years to have to explain why it's okay to criticize the president. Uh, and I feel like there's that added burden of having to say so every time I open my mouth uh, because I've been fairly vocal about this stuff. Uh, and again, it, it, it's as if I'm a traitor to the team or something like that. And I just don't think that way. I think it's more important to, ha- to maintain our integrity and, and call it like we see it. So let's go back a little bit uh, to uh, the way in which uh, we look out on the world and kind of America's role on the world. I think that there's a real, you know, a, a particular uh, Christian kind of ethos and, and idea that can be teased out that's 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 helpful and that's unique. I mean, there are a lot of people who, you know, say that the United States, you know, should engage, but they're, they come at it for maybe for the wrong reason. You know, there are a number of secularists who say that we should engage and we should, um, you know, be involved in the world to establish some kind of world order. Um, ultimately, from a very, it's that utopian kind of understanding that if we all just try hard enough, peace will, you know, uh, become the norm and, and the world, you know, inaugurate the eschatology kind of thing. It's, or it's uh, not, uh, eminentize the eschaton, sorry. Yeah. You know, this idea of just let's yeah. bring heaven on earth. You know, if we just try harder, this time it's going to be different. War will be ended. You know, um, that kind of um, uh, utopian uh, kind of fantasy that Niebuhr um, kind of talks about. But then Niebuhr also says the other side of that is the cynicism that says, you know what, humanity is just a lost cause. Um, Let's just take care of ourselves and let's just, you know, pull up shop. And I, I hear a lot of that cynicism. Uh, in the American first and in kind of the the Trump uh, foreign policy and a, a, a protection of our own interests and kind of retreating back to that. Uh, but what I would argue, and I, I want to hear kind of your your thoughts on this, is I think that there's um, a particular kind of Christian uh, ethic and, you know, providence exists to equip the American mind to engage the real world. Uh, so that's, you know, what I want us to do is to look past the politics and say, you know, there's as human beings, we have a role here on earth. And, you know, we can't just pull up, America can't pull up and, and you know, extricate ourselves from the planet, right? I mean, we have we have economic alliances and global alliances and geographic alliances. I mean, we're here. Uh, we're not going anywhere. The world's not going anywhere. So you can stick your head in the sand, but it's not going to change the, the reality that we have enemies, that we have partners, that we have allies, and that we're either pushing against, you know, evil or evil's going to overtake us. Um, you know, what is the, what do you think is a good kind of, you know, argument for Christians out there who would say, why can't we just take care of our own? And why does the United States have to be involved? Why do we have to, uh, you know, try and tend, uh, to the world order? Yeah. Well, th- thanks for bringing up Reinhold Niebuhr because he's exactly whom I'd want our listeners to be acquainted with. Niebuhr was a, a theologian, an American theologian, correct me, Lutheran tradition, I think, uh, in the sort of mid uh, 20th century, who uh, started out his uh, sort of career as a public intellectual, as both a socialist and a pacifist, and oh, you know, during the 1930s and then through the uh, World War II and early Cold War, he became a vocal proponent of American involvement in the world, American leadership of the free world, American involvement in World War II. He became a, a kind of a cold warrior, although he 
It also opposed the war in Vietnam. So he tried to steer that course, recognizing that it was good and right and just for the United States to, again, lead the free world in defense of ourselves and of others who share our values uh, against clear evils like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Although he was very, very keen stressing our need to be aware of our own propensity to sin and hubris and uh, excess. Uh, so he's a very good uh, guiding star, and he's he's all over my book. If you if you read my book, you see Niebuhr quotations uh, in a couple chapters all over the place. Um, so that's a helpful mindset for Christians, I hope for all Americans, to keep in mind as we think about our role in the world. But President Obama said that Niebuhr was his favorite political philosopher. I'm not convinced that Obama uh, maybe read as much Niebuhr as he needed to, because Obama took counsel from the, the part of Niebuhr that says, be aware of your sin. But I don't think he took counsel from the part of Niebuhr that says, "Take uh, be aware of your responsibility as well, uh, because we do need to have a responsibility for ourselves and for, for others. Um, you asked, how is it that we as Christians can understand our the, 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 the rightness, the goodness of a more maybe forward-leaning engagement in the world? And uh, there's a couple different ways to approach that question. Um, I haven't written this yet, but uh, I'd like to write it first as an article and then maybe a my third book from now, uh, on the sort of the biblical basis of ordered liberty, ordered liberty. Uh, this is the best biblical defense I can, I can come up with for some version of liberal democracy. Uh, when you think about uh, how God made humanity uh, and what he did with us, he put us in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, verse 15, he put Adam in the garden, quote, to tend and keep the garden, to tend and keep the garden. Now, if you've ever done any gardening, uh, my wife and I have done this for years. We used to build garden plots out back in the backyard. You know that a garden needs, first, it needs order. Right? You need to impose order upon soil. You need to actually sort of um, till uh, furrows in the dirt, and uh, you need to create rows and plant the seeds in rows. Then you need to put on a trellis. You need to actually erect uh, a framework for the plants and the vines to grow. And then after you've provided that order, you stand back and let things happen. You allow freedom. You allow nature to take its course. You allow the natural course of things, the teeming of life to come up and just happen. And so you need order for gardening, and you also need freedom for good gardening. And that, I think, is a helpful metaphor for understanding how our creative efforts in the world thrive. It's when we have both order and liberty. And that is a good uh, basic principle for all of our work, including our political work. When we till the garden of our politics, we need to affirm the goodness of order and the goodness of liberty. Liberal order is precisely that framework that embodies order and liberty. And uh, that is why I think we as Christians should support democracy at home, but also support a framework of ordered liberty among nations abroad. And that's what we call the liberal international order. Some people don't like it. Trump rails against globalism. I get it. Uh, but I respond that uh, the liberal international order is it's not imperialism. It does not uh, violate our sovereignty and it does not override our national culture. It does not, uh, you know, there's no world body out there telling us what language to speak, what religion we can have. Uh, the liberal international order is precisely the framework of ordered liberty among nations that allows for maximum flourishing and, and even cultural diversity around the world. And that's why I think we as Christians can affirm the goodness and the justice of the liberal international order. I know that's a very thin argument uh, for now. Just stay tuned. I'd love to write this out and flesh it out uh, in articles, perhaps for Providence and elsewhere. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and, I'd, and I'd love to hear feedback on that because I'm trying out these ideas. And I'd love to hear feedback, Drew, from you and from the readers of Providence, from the listeners to this podcast, uh, so I can help continue to refine this idea. No, I think that there, I think there's a good, I think there's a good thesis there. I think there's a good balance there. I think it's 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 properly rooted in the idea that um, uh, you know mankind is is placed here in the image of God, being made in the image of God. It's not just something that gives us inherent dignity and gives us inherent worth, but I think it it assigns to us a certain amount of of you know the responsibility that we have. And if you look at the um, uh, the creation mandate, you know, that we're not only as, as human beings, uh, God says in, in the book of Genesis, to you'll be fruitful, multiply, but exercise dominion and rule over every living thing, that there's this, this we are to be vice regents or we're to be um, uh, rulers here, uh, kind of in, in God's stead of this space and to, to tend it, to take care of it, to uh, rule, he says, over all the animals and uh, over every, you know, every living thing. And that, um, that through that rule, I think we reflect uh, his order. And um, I think what, uh, you know, the the value of the meta narrative of of scripture is it, it, the scripture is this story and this this history of a mankind engaging in that rule and engaging in that mandate, uh, you know, through unfortunately the experience of sin, uh, which which takes what is good that is in God and takes what is good in that rule and that mandate and you know perverts it and corrupts it and God is continually in His grace staying with us and stepping in and giving us rules and giving us opportunity and ultimately giving us his son to begin to redeem that process back. And um, I think the the value we have as Christians, you know, post-Christ, post uh, this kind of new kingdom uh, that that Jesus uh, inaugurated but hasn't yet been kind of consummated, is to to point people back to that larger reality, not only of our the the mandate that we started with, um, but the reality that's now made possible in Christ, that we have, you know, yes, we contend with sin, but there's this image of this new reborn, new Adam, this new creation in Jesus Christ, and how he comported himself, and the ethic that he used uh, in his life, and the way in which he related to governments, and the way in which he related to the the downtrodden and those in, in, in need, um, and uh, the way in which he comported himself, that is to be our model, right, and is to be yeah. kind of the the defining ethic of, all right, this is how you begin to yeah. act through him. So I think there's a good thesis there. And so I want you to write, I want you to write the article for yeah. us and, <laughs> and then write the book. Yeah. Cause I yeah. want to read it. Well, now let me take the, make the same argument in much different terms uh, about why this approach to the world is actually good, selfish, grand strategy for America, because some people are going to respond and say, that's all a bunch of, you know, the, 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 that's just the, theology and you can't, um, apply that to foreign policy. And uh, that sounds like you're counseling that we do our foreign policy with a sort of charity for the world. And, you know, you want to set up a world government, all that kind of stuff. So let me make the different, the same argument, same conclusions from a different angle. And I'll say that the liberal international order is good for America because it is the outer perimeter of American security. It is an engine of American prosperity, and it is a tool of American influence. So if I didn't convince you about the justice of the liberal order, let me simply uh, convince you about the pragmatic usefulness of the liberal international order for America. Um, it is the outer perimeter of our security. We, we of course, care about our inner perimeter, our actual territorial safety and, and, and you know, integrity. But uh, by investing in a system of ordered liberty around the world, we help stave off future potential threats. We're helping ensure that there's no 
rival totalitarian state that arises on the other side of the world that can threaten us by spreading this system of ordered liberty. We're also uh, growing the world economy. We're making everybody rich. Uh, you know, critics of capitalism don't like to hear this, but capitalism is the best anti-poverty program in the world. And as our version of liberal order has spread around the world, we have reduced poverty for hundreds of millions of people around the world, and we've made America a lot richer. I, you know, asterisk, I understand we can do a better job distributing those benefits more equitably, that's true, but the solution is a better version of capitalism, not an alternative to it. Um, and, and finally, liberal order is a tool of our influence. This just buys us more influence in the world stage. We have, the United States has entrenched itself at the center of global norms and institutions. So whenever anything you know, needs to get done, we tend to be uh, an agenda setter. And that gives us a, an influence in, in shaping uh, the world's agenda and shaping what happens in the world, like the Paris Climate Agreement that we maybe should have stayed in, like the Iran Nuclear Accord that we maybe should have stayed part of, uh, and, and other things. So uh, this is why I think, even as, as Christians, I, I affirm the value and the justice of ordered liberty. I also say, as an American, pragmatically, selfishly, let's keep this thing because it's good for us, it's a good foreign policy, it's prudent, grand strategy. Yeah, and I think there seems to be, and, and what you're talking about there, and I've tried to make this point often, that there seems to be some uh, kind of historical amnesia as to how America got to the position that it's in. And it didn't yeah. just happen. It, it wasn't just like, you know, one day we woke up and we were the the global hegemon. I mean, it, it took, uh, you know, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, uh, millions of lives. It, I mean, it took a, um, uh, a dedicated, consistent effort. Uh, sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. You know, you know, it's not always perfect. Mistakes are made. Uh, overreaching happens. Uh, you know, underreaching happens. But it's it's still it, can, it takes a consistent effort to uh, to get this world order, and it is is far preferable um, to uh, to be at the top than to have the agenda set by somebody else. And what I think it's difficult for a lot of people to understand, especially younger people, uh, you know, who have a, a far more limited experience. But even it seems it seems to me, people like you know President Trump, that it's like. America has not always been at the top. America has not always been the agenda setter. America has not always been kind of in the driver's seat of, of you know, global policy and history. And oftentimes, you know, we were dragged into where there was World War One or World War Two or, you know, any number of other uh, kind of uh, uh, previous entrapments drawn into events because we weren't the ones setting agendas. <laughs> we weren't yeah. the ones that were in the driver's seat. We didn't uh, take control. And, and yet our absence... Uh, from the position of power did not in any way insulate us from being affected by the the effects of what occurred, you know. Yeah, if, um, if, you, if you don't like the American-led world order, just wait till you see the Chinese version of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a valid argument. Well, I wish we could kind of continue our conversation, uh, but it's uh, illuminating. I'm grateful for your uh, your point of view and and for your uh, continued dialogue. I think it's uh, an important voice. I know that uh, people can follow you. you. Have a new podcast, right? Awkward conversations with Paul Miller. It sounds uh, <laughs> that's right ominous. Uh, so <laughs> perhaps by the time this uh, this episode airs, uh, the the podcast will be out. I think we're actually going to double broadcast this uh, interview. Uh, so it's not uh, as of today. It's not out there, but it will be very soon. Uh, unveiling a new podcast about politics and religion. So if you know if you like this stuff, if you like talking about politics and religion, the kind of controversial sensitive things, I love talking about this. Uh, as I hope maybe you can hear, and I would love to help others feel the courage to have these kind of conversations with your friends, family, and neighbors. Because I think not talking about it does a disservice to ourselves and to our country. So uh, that's what I hope to do with the uh, with with my new podcast. 
Well, thank you, Paul, for being part of this conversation. You can follow Paul uh, on Twitter at Paul D. Miller, too, and uh, you can uh, follow his upcoming uh, podcast, and you can read him in the pages of Providence. Uh, Paul Miller, thanks for being our uh, guest today. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.